linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now, this past weekend, I was wondering what I should do for this, my 99th podcast from the Psychedelic Salon. But by Monday morning, I still hadn't come up with anything that felt right. And then uh, the snail mail came, and I was pleasantly surprised to find not just one package, but two. And uh, the one I was expecting had a tape in it that I'll be playing for you next week, and I'll talk about that next week. But uh, the other package contained a stack of CDs from my friend JT. Now, if you've uh, been a long-time listener of these podcasts, you'll remember JT from the programs I did of some of the old Mind States conferences. Because JT, along with a couple of partners, has been doing the recording for John Hanna at his last few conferences, and he provided the recordings for me to use. So now he's sent me these recordings of all the Mind States 4 and Mind State 6 conferences, and he's given his permission to use the recordings in future podcasts. And as you know, uh, John Hanna has also given his blessing for this project. I'll have more to say about these recordings, as well as the most recent Mind States Costa Rica event, uh, a little later. But uh, first, I want to play three short talks from the Mind States 4 conference that was held in Berkeley, California, over the last weekend in May 2003. Now, the talks I'm going to uh, play right now are the first three from a panel of uh, six people that was organized around the topic of ways the government is using to control the direction and growth of our society. And it was called the uh, Panel on Culture Control, or the Culture Control Panel, if you prefer. The six people on the panel included Richard Glenn Boyer, attorney and co-founder of the Center for Cognitive Liberty, the author Eric Davis, entrepreneur and civil libertarian John Gilmore, psychonaut and author Zoe Seven, author, editor, and cultural icon Are You Serious?, and uh, myself. And today I'm going to play the opening remarks of the first three panelists. And although these talks were given over four years ago, I think you're going to find them still very much to the point. And uh, that's not necessarily a good thing, I'm afraid. So let's travel back in time to that beautiful Saturday in May and listen as Sue Blackmore introduces Richard Glenn Boyer, who chaired our little culture control panel. Compose your minds in compliance with international law, and we'll look forward to hearing about control culture. I'm going to hand over to Richard Glenn Boyer, who is going to be the um, controller of the control panel. Uh, over to you, Richard. Thank you very much. This is the control culture panel. One person mentioned that which I thought was kind of apropos to at least what I'll be talking about, that you could call it the paranoid panel or the paranoia panel. We have a great, great group of, um, of speakers here. I think I will introduce them individually right before they speak very briefly. And we're only going to talk shortly um, as individuals, and then we will have plenty of time for questions from the audience. Um, let me see. Okay. What we have here is a thing known as the variola. 
Um, this emerged in human populations a number of several thousand years ago and replicated itself extremely quickly, particularly in very dense cities. Um, it was a deadly virus. One out of every three people that um, were infected by this died. The people that didn't die from it were blinded and sometimes left sterile or very scarred. Um, by the turn of the century, by 1900, this virus had killed uh, an estimated 20 to 30 million people, uh, which was about 10% of the human population. And um, it's a smallpox virus. The last reported case of this virus was in 1949 in the U.S., in Texas. The last worldwide was in 1977 in Somalia. And then there was a weird case a year later when a, a laboratory person got it. Now it's been eradicated um, it's in some labs. Um, and what, what killed it was finally a vaccination. It's one of the most successful kind of stories in human history as far as um, people rising and, and overcoming something that was very, very deadly for a long time. What this has to do with mind states and altered states of consciousness, um, I think, unfortunately, has quite a bit to do with it, uh, particularly in the coming years. Because, it, it, you know, one of the things I think to think about is what if the government had the power, the technological power, to eradicate an, the altered state? What, what if the government could sort of inoculate you so you couldn't get high? If you took a drug, it didn't work in you. What if they could absolutely make it impossible for somebody to feel the effects of the drugs that they don't like? <laughs> uh, this is like my image of the drug war. It's uh, kind of like drug war old school in a way. It's, um, this is the war on drugs. The, the new school drug war, what I think is going to, to come about, unfortunately, is this. And um, this is kind of, uh, you know, doctor with a needle and indicates what I'm viewing as a shift in the metaphor that the government uses now since about the mid-1990s. It's no longer the metaphor of the war on drugs. If you read government literature about the war, it is now a, um, a big disease and people are becoming infected with the disease of, of using illegal drugs. Um, this is a quote from the 1997 National Drug Control Strategy Report, where uh, then Judge, I mean, then the drug czar Barry McCaffrey said the metaphor of a war on drugs is misleading. A more appropriate analogy for the drug problem is cancer. Dealing with cancer is a long term. Proposition, it requires the mobilization of support mechanisms to check its spread, deal with its consequences, and improve the prognosis. And, you know, as we all know, the way that we fight disease in our culture and sort of Western society is through drugs. This is a quote from the, the 2001 National Drug Control Strategy Report. And it says, very <laughs> Plain, just like other chronic diseases such as hypertension, diabetes, and cancer, for which medications have been developed, drug addiction is a disease that merits medication for its treatment. So the question, though, is, is it, is it actually possible to treat illegal drug use with um, other drugs? Are there actually some pharmaceuticals or you know, government-approved drugs, almost kind of anti-drugs, 
to treat people who use the bad drugs? And the unfortunate answer is that there, there are such drugs. They actually are being tested in humans now. And I like to just call them neurocops, which is, which is where I think we are heading. Let's get a glass of water real quick. What I think the drug war is about to become is, is like truly a drug war, the war of your favorite drug against the government's anti-drugs. The uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, has been pouring millions of dollars into creating these kinds of drugs that work in two ways. Either they police and um, make it so that your favorite illegal drug can't cross the blood-brain barrier, so it's in your body but it never gets to the brain, or they flood your body with a drug that plugs into the receptor sites that the illegal drug seeks to get into and it, it just can't get in there. And what they're going to do is turn these neurocops into vaccines. Um, one of those vaccines, which is now under production, is they have these for all the, the major class of illegal drugs right now, including marijuana. And this is the one that's been tested now in humans. It's only known as SR141716. Um, but this graph, which I don't know how clear it is, shows that um, human subjects who were injected with SR141716 and then smoked a joint re- said that the high that they felt after being, you know, taking this vaccine was roughly about 30% reduced from what they would normally feel. So this drug really does work. It stops you from feeling high or at least significantly reduces it. Um, that's a good thing. You know, if people want to take a drug like this to, to, you know, not feel like the cravings to smoke marijuana, that's great. The problem is that um, given the way the government has already handled the war on drugs, I think that we're foolish if we think this will only be a voluntary medication. Um, the most recent drug control strategy report, this year's, has this term, compassionate coercion. Oh, my God. This is real government, you know, publications. And, um, I, you know, you can read it. Compassionate coercion requires the use of innovative techniques for fighting addictions such as specialized pharmaceuticals. Now, what happened in the turn of, like, right in the 1900s, uh, there was a pretty big epidemic of smallpox in Boston. And they actually ended up, within less than a year of this epidemic sweeping the city, um, sending out what they called virus squads. And these were uh, surgeons, doctors with vaccines, brought with three police officers each who would go door to door and vaccinate people. And if they needed to, they would hold you down and do it. This is a newspaper article from the New York Times where it says 125 surgeons accompanied by police vaccinated 15,000 people yesterday. Um, this is compulsory vaccination. This is another slide where the, it's hard to see, but the image sort of to the right is a guy being held, and underneath it, it says, he strenuously objected, um, but he was vaccinated. So I'm afraid that if the government's already shown its, its general um, humanity, I guess, with respect to how it kicks in doors and roots out people who are using the drugs of, of, you know, that aren't authorized by the government. I'm afraid that when they continue developing these so-called vaccines, that they will be used in a compulsory manner. And it's, there's a number of factors I'll point to very quickly. One is that most of the drug laws that we call drug laws don't exist in the penal code section of our legal codes. 
They exist in the health and safety sections or the public safety sections where all the other laws exist with respect to infectious diseases and the control of them. Um, I think that when these inoculations become available, the first place we'll see them used is in prisoners, people who are confined into prisons already have a reduced uh, amount of freedom. I think that after that, we'll see them used for people who are convicted of a drug offense, even a marijuana offense, and who want to be granted probation or parole. One of the conditions will be, yeah, it won't send you to prison, but you're going to have to take this inoculation, which will make it impossible to get high. They already use something called antabuse, which is a, <clears throat> a drug, a, a pill that you can take that makes, uh, makes alcohol have a very strong reaction in your body, and this is con- uh, routinely ordered for people involved in alcohol offenses to take. And I think we'll see it used in the military. If you want to join the military, you have to take the anti-drug drug. And uh, I think employers at some point, if they're already starting to, you know, 50% of employers are testing employees or pre-employees to see if they use illegal drugs. So why wouldn't these guys just cut to the chase and say, you know, if you want to work for Walmart, you get the anti-drug inoculation. Um, it's much cheaper. These inoculations are... are um, supposed to be about three to four dollars a piece as opposed to about 30 bucks for a drug test. This is one of the big companies in the world of neurocops. Um, it's so big, in fact, that uh, Barry McCaffrey, the drug czar who I mentioned earlier, and I think everybody's aware of, when he quit being the drug czar, stepped down from that, he joined the board of directors of this company. Um, the CEO of this company had this statement to a, a Wall Street Journal uh, magazine. And she, she said, um, our company reminds me of Eli Lilly and Prozac in the depression field. In 1984, there was a $200 million market for depression. The market is now $10 billion. As Prozac and other products came in, the depression market evolved and he elevated depression from being a closet disease to a fully recognized and accepted disease state. Our goal is to develop the addiction market. Well, the way to develop the addiction market is to recharacterize what addiction is, particularly if you can say that, hey, you know what, anybody who uses one of these drugs is an addict, and they need treatment. Well... To get into the paranoia some more, this is from, again, the most recent government report. Whoops, let me go back. It said, um, drug use spreads because the vectors of contagion are not addicts in the streets, but users who do not yet show the consequences of their drug habit. This is the same quote continuing. Last year, some 16 million Americans used an illegal drug on at least a monthly basis, while 6.1 million... Americans were in need of treatment. The rest, still in the honeymoon phase of their drug-using careers, are carriers who transmit the disease to others who see only the surface of the fraud. Okay, so this is, uh, time is running out, but I want to just quickly say that what makes this kind of thinking by the government possible, that you know, we're going to create a, a vaccine and you drug users are going to get it so you don't continue to transmit your disease, is what's made the drug war itself possible, which is the government's total disrespect for what you know, we call cognitive liberty. And that is the right to control your own neurochemistry, to think the thoughts that you want to think, 
triggered by whatever inputs those may be, as long as you're not causing harm to others. Um, freedom of speech, for example, is dependent upon freedom of thought, because if you're not free to control your own consciousness, there is no, no freedom left. So um, I think that what we need to do is, and what I'm working on doing, is updating the legal notion of intellectual freedom and freedom of thought so that it includes this recognition for the underlying functional neurochemistry. I think we need in this country a Roe v. Wade of the mind, a whole a case that establishes this right. So I think we need to say no to the neurocops, no to the thought police, and yes to just basic human freedoms again. Thanks. Okay, next up is Eric Davis, who just is like one of the people, like many of the people on this panel, who continually um, just blows my mind with the stuff that he thinks about and, and is able to articulate. He's the author of a book called Technosis, which is available in the bookstore in back. He's working on another book right now and just recently had a, a really cool article on Salon.com about the Matrix, and I think that is actually the topic of his discussion now. So this is Eric Davis. All right, I just got a question to start out now. Uh, how many of you out there have, uh, have seen The Matrix? Right? Uh, how many of you have seen the movies? <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things that's amazing about the, uh, the Matrix films is they're, they're what I call a, a convergent myth. Because the ba basic myth structure they, uh, they lay out uh, works on many, many different levels simultaneously. There's a political level, level of control and paranoia, surveillance society, the kind of things that we're talking about here. There's a neurological level where there's clearly something about fate and free will and the way we construct real-time perception of an ongoing world and how that works. Uh, Mark Pesci last night made a, made a reference to that, that we're really actually inside the matrix that our own minds create uh, on the fly. And uh, there's a technological level, where as we move towards this kind of convergence where the more we know about how the human nervous system produces the, the sense of reality on many different levels, proprioception, visual cues, uh, cultural significance, as that kind of knowledge becomes embedded in ever more uh, powerful technologies of perception, we move ever closer to this kind of vanishing point of total simulation. Uh, I, I, don't th I think it's in many ways total simulation is a kind of myth in the sense that we're not there yet. We don't know what it looks like. This, has been a, this is a very old idea in, in many ways. Uh, and so it, it, there may always be some kind of crack. And yet, nonetheless, if you kind of chart the lines, you, you look at a sort of collapsing point, a sort of black hole of simulation. And finally, there's the element which it didn't really need to have for all those other things to be working out well, which is a profoundly spiritual one. The, the layers of religious and mystical and, and Gnostic symbolism and ideas in the, in the movies go rather deep. And though they're sort of uh, a kind of uh, 
playful comic book, ultimately, um, it's still nonetheless remarkable how this kind of convergent myth where all of these different points uh, wind us up in the same place, which is this fundamental suspicion, which is very old but manifests in very different ways in different kinds of cultures, that there's just something fundam- fundamentally off about the world as I perceive it. Uh, what I talk about in technosis is a way this sort of Gnostic hunch, the sense that there's some kind of uh, false construct that I'm in, is really part and parcel of technological society, and there's really no way uh, uh, outside of that. Now, when I, so what really interests me here, uh, in, briefly, in terms of our panel, is to look at two aspects of this matrix scenario, which is the sort of spiritual one and the political one. And a way of saying it simply is, how does one practice spirituality, which I'll mention in a second, or define in a second, in the context of this growing surveillance society and this very strange, rather tacky and low-rent dystopia that's being produced all around us. Now, by spirituality, uh, by spirituality, I really mean something uh, very simple, which is the process of inquiry. And I mean inquiry on multiple levels. So the, the kinds of neurological questions that uh, someone like Susan Blackmore would raise is, for me, part of what I'm defining as spirituality. It might also imply moving through religions and religious systems in very non-rational modes of thought, experimenting with rituals, meditation, drugs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it ultimately comes down to what I identify as a, as a very modern sensibility of constant inquiry into what is going on here, what is going on here. So I don't have any, uh, here's what we're going to do about it, what we should do about this problem that we face, this imminent disaster on so many different uh, levels. I I don't have an answer for that, but what I'm interested in more here is on a kind of meta level of like how do you work with it? How do you work with the situation and, and what are the sort of ways of integrating it into this continuing process of inquiry? Um, and the main sort of thing you're facing is fear. Uh, paranoia is a you know, nice subset of this, but let's just talk about uh, fear. Now, the first level of fear that we sort of in, are in, encountering now, and it's a massive production of our whole uh, media sphere, our politics or whatever, is the kind of, let's say, um, official fears. The official fears are the fears that are produced by the government and constructed in the media and that we have these marvelous orange alerts. Uh, I'm going to be traveling on Tuesday and I'm, I'm looking forward to like putting lots of oranges in all of my bags. So they're like, why do you have all these oranges? In? And, uh, you know. and so we have this sort of mainstream fear mechanism and we're all aware of it. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't legitimate truth behind some of those fears, that there's not actually, I'm sure somewhere... You know, out there, there are little teams of, you know, big bearded men going, hmm, Golden Gate Bridge, tasty. You know, I'm not saying that there's not legitimate fears, but in what I'm trying to do is that the rational question of the sort of statistical probability and the likelihood and the unlikelihood is in a way a trap. In a way, it's sort of beside the point. Because at the same time, there's always this level of magic, essentially. There's always this level of manipulating imaginative possibility, which is what I mean by magic in this sense. So I want to say a little bit more about that. Is that, you know, human beings in many ways are like, we're like these sort of scenario casting machines. We're always casting scenarios. Well, you know, if I go there and that thing's, you know, it goes way back. You know, if we all kind of rush on these buffalo at the same time and then they're going to fall over, you know. It, it's, a, it's a very handy tool, scenario casting, building models, you know, trying to figure out how we would do that, da 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 So this is a very basic thing that, that we have within us. 
Um, and what we're finding now is that the ability of the media to manipulate and produce uh, scenarios that then kind of draw people in in a sort of tractor beam-like way is becoming you know, more and more intense. I mean, in some sense, this is always happening, but it's more uh, palpably uh, invasive at this point. And it's interesting to compare our current fear economy with the attention economy of the 1990s, because in some ways, nothing has changed. In the, if, you, if you can you know, go into the Wayback Machine for five, six years, uh, one way of defining the sort of hysteria of the, of the 90s economy, certainly in this part of the world, was that it was investing itself in this massive possibility machine. There's an immense array of possibilities that our technology is producing, our connectivity is producing, our growing knowledge of any number of fields, so that by milking this possibility space correctly, we're going to make big money, we're going to do some great stuff, we're going to you know, move human beings forward. It was a tremendously optimistic, if also extremely uh, you know, manipulative and um, uh, uh, profit-driven kind of imagining, and yet it was essentially this kind of hyperactive production of scenarios, of possibilities. And that's how, you know, dot com, I have a scenario, give me some money, you know, so that's how it worked. And and what happened post 9-11 is that we kept the scenarios going. They just like shifted 180 degrees from this kind of weird, you know, capitalist techno utopia to this dire dystopia. And, you know, immediately after the event, you had, you know, every media source you listened to, every professional came out that was like, here are the scenarios that I can produce. Well, we got these kinds of weapons, we have these kinds of diseases, we have this kind of weaknesses in the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's this mania for the production of these uh, terrifying scenarios, many of which are legitimate. And then we're going to hear more about them. We just heard about a terrible one. Da, 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 da. So what comes to me is, how do I deal with this? How do I, how do I work with this on a level that is not just... That in a way takes advantage of it. So maybe we are in a, in a, in down, you know, diving downward into darkness. Well, how do we ride through this with as much awakeness as possible? And it really has to do with con- confronting fear and confronting fear on a very deep sort of imaginal level as well as a, a level of being aware of how it's being manipulated. Now, most people in this audience uh, is kind of woken up from the mainstream matrix of fear manipulation. You know, you, you don't I, I doubt many of you get there. You know, the orange alert really kind of you know, got you all nervous, you know, I, I have a feeling that probably didn't happen, even if you can still imagine the kinds of scenarios uh, that, that terrorists or, or, or people who hate us might, uh, you know, want to lay out on us. I think then in this audience, the kind of terror and fear that people face is a little bit more like what Richard just introduced us to, which is a little bit more fear of, you know, our own big daddy, our own government, our own control systems. I mean, that was what was remarkable about this. Even though I was, became very nervous and sort of rattled by the, the last year and a half, as a lot of people, I, I, I think, did, I, I, I didn't really, it, the, the, the terrorist stuff just didn't work on me. I just, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't feel it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't in my heart. But, it, but, you know, big daddy government stuff was like right to the front, you know. I had some very spooky dreams. And as I said, I had a lot of very spooky dreams. I had a lot of insomnia. I had a lot of like that nighttime thing where you're just playing out all these escapes and they're half plausible and then they turn into some, you know, bad science fiction movie and it's like, what's going on here? And I started to realize that I was dealing with this thing that has works on on sort of multiple levels. 
and that paranoia and fear are a way into engaging deeper kinds of forces, uh, both political forces and behind that I think even more uh, basic existential and symbolic and, and, and religious uh, kinds of issues. What I mean by the politics, which is sort of a, a little bit more to the point here, is that you know, we are, there is a political unconscious. There's a sense of how power is distributed in society that we only really get to kind of through the imaginal realm, through the, the realm of dreams and intuitions and, and peripheral cues that we don't get through the rational language that we're always taught is the way we deal with these problems. And the media, well, well, let's dissect this issue. And, oh, well, I take this, my opinion's over here. You know, this endless jabbering machine of quasi-reason when, when all around it, there's this sort of imaginal battle going on. Um, I think the, the sort of most obvious and, and sort of amusing example of this is that marvelous logo for the uh, Office of Information Awareness that, for Poindexter's little, uh, you know, vaporware project, essentially. I mean, when you look at what it actually was, it was some, you know, co- you know canny folks in, in, you know, in various technology centers going, hey, we have some pretty good stuff. You know, we got little, we can have little neural uh, uh, programs and genetic algorithms are going to sift through data, blah, blah, blah. Everybody wants to sift through data. How, how much real beef was behind the stuff that they were wanting to do? You know, more or less. But that icon, that image, that symbol, it was a gateway, it was a portal, it was like one of those resonant images you see that flash on the screen in the Matrix. And what it, what, what it was a portal into was this irrational, imaginal, even sort of, you know, shamanic kind of game or war that's, go- that's going on in which our subconsciouses are being pulled and, pu- you know, and tugged in different kinds of ways. And so when we see these kinds of gestures emerge through the media, we are right to uh, sort of paranoically question what's uh, sort of behind them. And that kind of work uh, is exactly what I'm talking about in terms of bringing that deeper life into the sorts of experiences that we're facing. Uh, one final little little bit uh, is uh, the Tibetan practice of Chud, wherein you give your body to the demons. And we are facing demons on multiple levels. And it doesn't mean you, you disappear. It doesn't mean you uh, stop fighting for whatever you're fighting for. But there is a sort of process here, a kind of confrontation that I think is really profound. As uh, Dale Pendell said in a line that's just stuck with me, When one learns to face the gods directly, one no longer fears facing a king. Uh, Next speaker is John Gilmore. He's um, another amazing person that I had the pleasure of meeting several years ago. He's done too many things to list. The thing that I kind of like a lot is uh, he created the alt.drug. I mean, he created the whole alt.dot system of Usenet groups. Um, he's made like a millions of dollars several times in, in various companies. And now he's just giving the money away to our group and other groups and is, is funding a lot of the progressive drug policy stuff. And he is uh, now challenging John Ashcroft and the whole Department of Justice for making him show his ID and and treating him like a suspected terrorist every time he wants to travel within our own country. So this is John Gilmore. So um, what I want to talk about is 
sort of how we're here to talk about mind states, but, but when it comes to control culture, the issue is really people in the world who want to shape the state of your mind and want to shape the state of the world. I think the appropriate response to that is, is to use the state of our minds, reflect it back, and, sh- and reshape the state of the world. In a sense, um, the shape of the world is really a reflection of how we think about it. A lot of what we've talked about in the last couple of days is like the things you see are the things you're paying attention to. And actually something Eric said reminded me of the old line about uh, if you fight with monsters, beware that you don't turn into a monster and also know that as you gaze into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. So rather than looking too hard at the abyss, uh, I've tried to find other ways to uh, deal. A lot of people just sort of, when the government says, uh, you know, terror, danger, evil, trouble, you know, people sort of zoom in and, and look at that stuff. And instead, I kind of back away and say, what are they doing around the edges while, while they're trying to get your attention over here? And a lot of that stuff is hidden in plain sight. For example, I once, about five years ago, heard a lecture by James Woolsey, who was, used to be head of the CIA. And he said that this, he talked about this threat of terrorism that was there, and, you know, he couldn't tell us all the um, terrible things they had already averted, but, but we had to believe that they existed, etc. But he said they've got this fundamental problem that they're facing, which is that individuals, as our society has evolved up to this point, individuals are getting more and more and more power to change the world, right? A small number of people, 20 people working together, were able to take out a couple of major buildings. And, and, you know, that was the least of it. They were able to trigger the culture to do much more destructive things than that. But that power that's available to individuals applies in both directions. If you focus on the ability of individuals to do evil, you forget the ability of individuals to do good. Which brings me around to another quote that I'll mangle here. Something on the order of, um, uh, of course individuals can change the world. In fact, that's the only way it ever happens. It doesn't take a lot of people to change the world. What it takes is insight and ideas, perseverance, uh, and, and fighting the whole system with humor is a good way to do it. It's another way to turn your attention away from the terror and into the, uh, the uh, instead of the gravity, you go for the comedy. One of the, one of the reasons that the uh, total information awareness got so much attention in the press and so much attention from Congress eventually is that some guy put up a website called the John Poindexter Information Office (laughs) and started searching out Poindexter information on websites and like like Google him and read all the stuff and search him, you know. They found his home address and posted it. They got photos of his house and put them up, satellite photos of the neighborhood, found where he'd gone to college, his son is an astronaut, you know, it's like on and on and on. And it's, you know. It was a way to take this vague threat and make it 
real as applied to the guy who was trying to make it apply to us. Um, Penn Jillette does a lot of this stuff, too. He, where I found out about this, this is, this is the Bill of Rights Security Edition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a piece of metal with the first ten amendments printed on it. Uh, Fourth Amendment is printed in red, like the words of our Lord. (laughs) And it's a great thing to, like, slip into your shirt pocket as you go through the magnetometer. (laughs) Because then when the guards find it, you know, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, sir, you can't take the Bill of Rights into an airport. So the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, these are memes, right? They're not alive. They're not self-executing. They require human hosts to carry them and spread them around. And I've been infected by that meme, and I'm carrying it around. Now, one of the, uh, one of the memes I've been infected by uh, is freedom of thought, and, and this man is partially responsible for this. Um, how many people here have, have a freedom of thought light? Will you uh, flash it if you do? <laughs> ah, got a few. Yeah, see? When you use that light, think about freedom of thought, because it's one of those freedoms that has been implicit for so long that we forget it exists. And then when they try to take it away, we don't notice. And I think that's been a lot of the strategy, is while they're holding our attention over here, is to take away all the freedoms that nobody thinks about because they've, they've been ingrained in the culture for so long. Um, freedom of thought is one. It's only those stupid drug users who, you know, and half of them are in prison anyway. So... <laughs> That doesn't really matter if we get rid of that. Um, another one that I've been working on is freedom of movement. It's taken for granted that, that we have the freedom to control our own movements, that if you want to walk across the room or across the street, you're free to, that the government can't stop you. If you want to move from one town to another, you can. Well, the government has deliberately put in restrictions on freedom of movement. And... I've been deliberately subjecting myself to those restrictions. I haven't flown from one place to another in the United States since 9-11. I've gone to airports, and I've tried, (laughs) and they wouldn't let me fly because I wouldn't show them an ID. And uh, so I brought a case against John Ashcroft and the Transportation Security Agency and all of those other people, saying, wait, when I go back and read Supreme Court cases, I find things that go back more than 100 years that say we have freedom to travel, freedom of movement, that the government can't restrict this. We have one Supreme Court justice who went so far as to say, this is a right even stronger than most of the other rights because... It can be asserted not only against the government, but against private parties. If a private party restrains your freedom of movement, you call it kidnapping. 
Um, but somehow, people haven't paid much attention to this. It turns out that not only are they putting arbitrary restrictions on who can fly, but also who can take intercity buses, who can take trains, and who can travel by water, who can take cruise ships, all within the United States. Now, the right to travel goes back before the Constitution to the original Articles of Confederation, where it was an explicit rule that said a citizen of any of the states has the right to travel through any of the other states. And another Supreme Court decision from about 100 years ago said that right is really what made the 13 colonies into a unified nation. Right? The fact that if you were a citizen of Georgia, you were free to go to New York. That, they, that New York couldn't put up barriers and say, no, 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 New York people get better treatment than Georgia people. Freedom of identity is another one. Um, some people call it anonymity. It's, it's been upheld many, many, many times by the Supreme Court. The most recent was when the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses were going door to door. It's a case called Watchtower versus Village of somewhere or other. And the city tried to make them get a permit to go door to door and preach and solicit for donations, and they took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, Supreme Court said no. They have a right to go without government permission, without identifying themselves. You're allowed to walk around your town and talk to your neighbors without government permission, without identifying yourself, without showing an ID. Um, and cases all the way back talk about this. Uh, freedom of association anonymously. The, the Supreme Court knocked out an Alabama law that would have required the NAACP to turn over its membership list. It was disguised as a tax. They put a tax on nonprofit organizations and said, oh, we have to see how many members you have to see how much tax you should pay. So you have to turn this over. And what, really what it was was an attempt to get the list of all the people who were supporting the rights of colored people and turn it over to the uh, racist people who ran the government of Alabama. That was turned down. So I encourage you all to think about these rights that only affect a few people here and there at the moment, where the government is sort of going behind the scenes saying, well, we don't really need to prove that you've committed a crime to put you in prison. We've only done it to a 1,000 people. That's a tiny fraction of the population. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, you don't really need your anonymity to fly. Are you a terrorist? Who are you trying to protect? Um, notice when these things go away, assert your rights, because the only way you'll find out what the real rules are is by insisting on having them. Um, it's, really, it's really hard to change the rules unless you know what the rules are. And, it, and as it turns out, the rules about showing ID in airports are not written down anywhere. Congress never passed a law that said you had to show an ID to get on an airplane. The FAA and the TSA never passed a published regulation that said you had to do it. It's all happened in secret. And all of you have gone along with it. So quit.
Now there's the first time that Just Say No has made any sense to me. Just say no the next time somebody asks for your ID. <laughs> As for an update to John's case, I'm, uh, I'm afraid the courts were of no help. Here's what John has to say about uh, the case from his website. And I'm quoting here. I petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to examine whether the feds can enforce secret regulations. I lost every one of these lawsuits. The Constitution is a dead letter as far as one branch of the federal dictatorship is concerned. Whatever the executive does, the Congress and the courts rubber stamp. What we did discover is that there is no requirement to show an ID to get on an airplane. TSA said so in their papers and in open court. But each of these courts refused to make TSA stop lying to the public with airport signs telling every passenger that their ID is required. Well, I I guess nobody really expected that one person could single-handedly force a change in our current culture of fear. But uh, we all do have to applaud John for having the courage to bring this issue out into the open. What a difference the citizens of this country could make if everyone just said no to the continuing erosion of our basic rights as citizens and as humans. It's not really too much of a stretch of imagination to see that we're all inmates in some bizarre prison of our own making. The only question is, uh, when do we inmates decide to take over the prison and run the guards out on a rail? Which, uh, ultimately, is uh, what these podcasts are all about. Taking back the control of our culture. And I, for one, happen to believe that the culture that arises from the psychedelic experience is where we have to go if we're going to survive as a species. So, where do we start? Well, just listening again to Richard explaining how the war on drugs is morphing into a a war on some kind of disease you can be inoculated against is uh, really frightening when you think about it. You know, go back and reread Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and see if you agree with me that we're now in that kind of a world. Can you even imagine what it would be like to live in a world where everyone's been chemically manipulated by the government? immunized, they would say, uh, so that it was impossible to get high. Are you ready to go through the rest of your life without even the possibility of altering your default consciousness? Well, I'm not. Uh, I can tell you that for sure. And if we're not careful, our schools will soon be teaching our young people that this is a good idea, you know, to get an inoculation against getting high. And, uh, you know, there once was a day when schools, uh, some schools at least, taught people how to think, not what to think. But uh, those days are long gone now, I'm afraid. It's now the official law of the land in the U.S. that school principals can forbid students to even think about uh, what they call drugs. You know, in any kind of a positive way. Let me let me read a few sentences here from a news report about a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that was handed down a couple of days ago. It says, in a five to four ruling involving free speech, the court ruled today against an Alaska high school student finding that educators can prohibit student expression that can be interpreted as advocating drug use. In the Alaska case involving free speech, the court found that a high school principal and school board did not violate a student's rights by punishing him for displaying the words 
Bong hits for Jesus. That's right. Bong hits for Jesus is what got him in trouble. Uh, displayed it on a banner across the street from the school as the 2002 Olympic torch parade went by. Whatever rights students may have to express themselves, thumbing their noses at school officials' anti-drug messages is not one of them, according to this article. Well, can you believe that? You know, students in the U.S. can't even express their opinions about the insanity of the anti-drug messages going around. You know, if you've ever seen some of the nutty stuff educators put out on behalf of their comrades in the war on drugs, you just really have to laugh. You know, for the, for the most part, their information is so far off the mark as to make that old Reaper Madness movie kind of look rational. So any, uh, any young person who's either used an illegal substance or who knows someone who already has uh, used them, well, that person knows that the propaganda masters really don't have a clue about these substances. And if your teachers are so ignorant about drugs, well, what else are they ignorant about? Makes you think, huh? At least that's the risk these so-called educators take in eliminating all intelligent discussion about this issue. So I, I guess these podcasts uh, might now be against school rules in some places, which is probably a, a good news because uh, <laughs> if the war on drugs has taught us anything, it's that prohibition only drives up demand. And if you want to keep up to date on the legal issues surrounding the war on drugs, or more truthfully, as Richard calls it, the war on consciousness, the best place to stay informed is at www.cognitiveliberty, all one word, cognitiveliberty.org, which is the organization Richard co-founded with his wife, Rye. And it's by far the best site uh, dealing with these issues that I think you're going to find. And in the interest of full disclosure, I guess I should add that Richard and Rye are also dear friends of Mary C's and mine, and they also have our personal recommendations as well. And since uh, some of the information in this podcast can be a little bit of a downer, you might want to go back and uh, re-listen to what Eric Davis had to say about escaping the Matrix. And if you really want to escape the Matrix, well, I'll see you at Burning Man, because uh, that's about as far away from the Matrix as I can imagine. And if all goes according to plan, you can uh, come and hear Eric Davis at one of the Blanque Norte lectures again this year. Anyway, I'd better move on, uh, get away from Burning Man here for a minute, and get on to a couple emails that came in recently. Uh, one that may affect uh, some of the others of you uh, came from Andrew, who wrote, I would like to listen to all of your previous podcasts, but when I downloaded them, t- my pause option is disabled. I use that feature a lot to go back and forth, etc. Is there any way I can do this? So I wrote back and told him that I've noticed that when I downloaded one of these podcasts using iTunes, that uh, seems to change a few things in the MP3 tag, uh, like the name of the featured speaker, for example. So I suggested that he try downloading the MP3 files directly from our psychedelicsalon.org website and see what happens. Well, Andrew wrote back and said that that fixed his problem. So uh, some kind of uh, high weirdness like that is uh, going on and maybe affecting your MP3 player. Well, you might want to try downloading the podcast directly from our website. And while I'm at it, I guess I should mention that for the... uh, 
last few podcasts, I've added a listen feature on the program notes page. Uh, and over time, I'll eventually get that feature backfitted uh, for all of the podcasts so that you can stream them directly from the site if you want. Also, uh, if you go to www.psychedelicsalon.org, you'll see that it's uh, built with the open source WordPress blog uh, software. And so uh, it has a category feature where you can more easily find a particular speaker or topic. One other email I want to mention comes from a young woman who lives in Norway. And uh, here's part of what she had to say. As you already know, you have an audience all over the world. I want to point out that you also have people listening to you who have never tried psychedelic drugs. I'm a very curious, spiritual, and intelligent person, and I see a great need in this world to expand horizons. I am sure that certain medicines can help you with that. To me, it's an inspiration just to listen to people's experiences in the psychedelic realm. I believe that people can learn things from psychoactive drugs if they use them the right way. I'd wish that uh, our society was aware of this and knew how to use them as a gift from nature. Anyway, I'm glad I found your podcast. Previously, I thought very differently about people who experimented with drugs. I would never have thought that they could be this smart. Well, uh, Carrie, it's really nice of you to say that, and the fact that you have changed your view of the psychedelic community is something that brings joy to my heart. And uh, I think that I speak for our fellow saloners when I say that it's reassuring to know that people who uh, haven't had a psychedelic experience uh, can still understand the potential importance of these substances. And uh, while actually using these medicines has been important to many of us, the fact remains that ultimately psychedelic thinking is uh, about how freely you can allow your mind to soar and And it's not just some weird hallucination brought on by the ingestion of a plant or chemical. You know, I I think your open mind is a good sign that there still is hope for our species. You know, if only we can learn to get along with one another a little better. That doesn't really even seem like it's asking for too much, does it? Oh, well, uh, at least we get along here in the salon, uh, even if we do disagree about a few things from time to time. And I guess before I go, I should also mention that uh, this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. If you have any questions about that, uh, just click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which, uh, as you know, you can find at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. A big thank you to uh, Chateau Hayuk again for the use of your music here in the salon. And to Richard, Eric, and John, thanks again for contributing your thoughts to our community and to our conversation about the evolution of the culture. And to John Hanna and JT, who uh, made the conference and the recordings materialize, well, thanks again, guys. Uh, We all owe a big debt of gratitude uh, to you for keeping these gatherings alive. And there are a few other people uh, right now who I want to send a special thank you to on this, my 99th podcast from the Psychedelic Salon. They are Jeannie K., A. Andrew G., Stephen F., and Paul D., 
all of whom made very generous donations to uh, help offset the expenses associated with these podcasts. And I deeply appreciate your very generous contributions, uh, much more than you might suspect, I'm sure. I have to admit that a a part of me finds it somewhat difficult to accept these donations, uh, just like it's hard to accept gifts from strangers at Burning Man. But uh, I must admit that these donations are coming in quite handy for little things like gas to drive to L.A. to record those interviews with Gary Fisher and getting a new microphone and things like that. So uh, they really are appreciated. Thank you very much. And by the way, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, Paul D. uh, was one of the very first people to send a donation to the salon last year. And just this morning I received an email from Yarov, who made a contribution to the salon a little while back. And uh, just now he offered to send me the scanner that I mentioned in a a previous podcast. And uh, when I wrote back to thank him and say that uh, a friend had just given me one, what did he do but turn around and send the money he'd set aside for the scanner anyway? (laughs) Well, gosh, what can I say? Thank you. Uh, just certainly doesn't seem like enough there, uh, Yarov and all of you donors. But, uh, hey, thank you all, one and all. And thank you, you know, thank you for spending some of your valuable time here with us in the salon today. And I really look forward to being back with you again next week. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Into the light, into the light, into the light of